0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Our first guest kept a secret for years. Stacy Friedenthal is a psychotherapist in Denver, and she studies suicide. But until recently, she hadn't revealed her own experience with the issue, that she had attempted suicide in her 20s. As Colorado grapples with record-high suicides, including two seniors recently at a Metro Denver high school, we asked Friedenthal to tell her story— She's also an associate professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. Stacy, welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me.
0: You wrote about your personal experience with suicide and depression in the New York Times in May. Talk about coming out to the world about this.
1: In it's a small publication. A few people read it.
0: <laughs> in that account, you say you had your first bout of depression at 12. Yes. What happened at 12?
1: Adolescence. (laughs) Um, I was an adolescent girl. That's enough said, right? You know, there were a number of things, but that particular episode was at summer camp, and there was a lot of bullying and ostracism, and I got on the wrong side of that. I was friends with these girls who were bullying another girl, and I spoke up in her defense, so then I was bullied. Hmm. And I just had a very, very bad time of it at summer camp far away from home where nobody would talk to me.
0: This led to depression.
1: Yes. And on and off that whole year of seventh grade, I think it was, I had depression on and off. I mean, nobody called it that then, but looking back on it.
0: It's interesting because you opened the conversation by saying adolescence. (laughs) I think you were only partly joking. In other words, uh, adolescence is something of a soup, uh, I think, whose ingredients could easily lead to depression. So there was you feeling ostracized, for one. But I think there's a lot more going on there.
1: Sure, And I mean, one thing we know about suicide rates is that they increase precipitously with puberty.
0: Oh, I didn't know that.
1: Yes. So when we look at young people who have gone through puberty and those who haven't, the rates just dramatically increase. Is that to say
0: that it's hormonal?
1: You know, there likely is a hormonal aspect to it, but it hasn't completely been pinned down. I mean, another thing we know about the hormonal aspect is that girls and women are more prone to depression and suicide attempts than boys and men. Um, Men have much higher rates of suicide fatalities.
0: Do I hear you saying that the thought occurs more often for young women... The completion of suicide more often occurs for young men. Correct. Okay. You also said that at the time, it would not have been called, and you didn't know to call it, depression. Do you think that has changed
1: I think there's a much bigger awareness now than when I was 12 years old, which I won't say how many years ago that was, but it was quite a few. Now, you know, we have mental health screening in schools, we have suicide prevention programs, we have a national suicide hotline. It's much more on the radar.
0: And yet, that would lead one to think that the suicide rates would go down, and yet, that's not the case. More on that later, but I want to get to what happened when you were in graduate school. Uh, Because in in the article in the New York Times, you talk about this. Uh, You're 26. Depression, you say, was stalking you. And that your mind fixated on small things like dirty floors in the duplex that you were renting. Uh, How would you describe your state of mind uh, at that point? And and this is about when you uh, attempt suicide. Mm
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well... There's something called cognitive constriction that's considered like tunnel vision. So when you think of a horse wearing blinders, and you can only see one thing. And I think I was in a state of acute cognitive constriction.
0: That is, any light at the end of the tunnel was actually not perceptible to you.
1: Exactly. It was only darkness. And, you know, when when you think of cognitive constriction, another way to look at it is like a mental toothache. So somebody has a toothache, that's all they can think about. If they have a real toothache, like an abscess tooth, that's all they're going to be thinking about is that pain. And I think I was in a state of just being hyper-focused on things that were wrong or hopeless or negative, And my mind was unrelenting.
0: You talk about yourself as having been bathed in self-hatred at this time. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and you were obsessed with, with small things hated yourself then for being obsessed with things and wondered how anyone could ever love you. Mm -hmm. And yet you say no one knew back then that you hid it for months. Just quoting here, vibrant and sociable in the day and alone and miserable in my head at night. And then one night you say you couldn't bear it anymore.
1: It's really sad to hear you read that out loud. Yeah. (laughs) I I wrote it and I lived it, but that, that was sad. So that night was just... Absolutely dreadful. I mean, I was convinced that this is the way it will always be, and I couldn't see a way out.
0: And that's often a function of deep depression.
1: hmm And here, I'm not talking about depression as being in a blue mood or feeling down or I'm in a depressed mood. I'm talking about depression as a as a clinical phenomenon. And one thing we know is that it's a cognitive phenomenon, too, so that people who have depression Their problem-solving ability is greatly reduced. And that's where suicide can really become alluring, is that they can't see other ways to solve their problems. They can't see other ways out of their pain.
0: What would you like to share about your suicide attempt, if anything?
1: Um, Well, I think the most important thing would be that change is possible. You know, that in, in that state of mind, people can get to a place where they think it's impossible to feel better.
0: But if they're focused solely on how bad it is, is there a possibility of changing their mind? And I I think this is the critical question about youth suicide in particular.
1: Yes. I think, you know, even if you can only change their mind, like even if just in a conversation you can inject just a little bit of hope or a little bit of light, then they know that it's possible to feel different. And I think this is something we're seeing with a new drug called ketamine, not very new, but it's being newly tested with suicidal people. It's having dramatic effects. And I think part of it is that it's very temporary, but at least then people can see, okay, I can feel differently.
0: It takes the blinders off for a bit.
1: Even if temporarily.
0: Is this something you're seeing prescribed more and more?
1: It's still in the experimental stages.
0: I wonder if there's a power to being a therapist who has had the experience the patients might be going through?
1: I think that there are some gifts, and then I think there are some things to be to beware of as well. But I mean, I think one thing that I take from my experience is I'm not scared to talk about suicidal thoughts with my clients, and I speak with a lot of therapists because I provide consulting too, who are just terrified of even asking somebody if they're having suicidal thoughts. And
0: they, Is the fear that if they ask, they might plant the idea?
1: Yes, very much that's their fear. And in reality, people know about suicide already. We're not telling them something they don't know. But the other fear is that the person will say yes, and then they're afraid of what to do and how to do it.
0: You had talked about the difference between now And when you were a kid, just the difference in resources and counselors who talk about things like depression, wouldn't it serve to reason then that the suicide rate would be plummeting in that environment?
1: You know, I've been thinking about this recently, that we've been doing so much more in the last probably 15 to 20 years in suicide prevention. We have a national hotline. We have a crisis text line. We have some treatments that have demonstrated at least some effectiveness at reducing suicide attempts and suicidal thoughts. And we didn't have all of those 15 to 20 years ago. And yet our suicide rate in this country has gone up pretty much 30 percent since
0: 1999. And I think that besides the question of how to prevent suicide, this is the, perhaps the second most asked and unanswered, which is why is the rate where it is? And, and how do you answer that?
1: Well, one thing I tell myself, and perhaps I'm just trying to soothe myself since this is what I've dedicated my professional life to, is that maybe it would be even higher. You know, maybe we are having an effect, but we don't know that because maybe there are forces that are just so big going on right now that we're tamping it down. But how do you know that? Mm -hmm. You know, how do you determine that? But it is a possibility the other thing is, is we're just going through so much transition as a society in the United States. I mean, when you look at economically, there's a lot of safety nets that aren't there anymore that used to be there. There's a lot less financial security for people with social media. Uh, I think, you know, for me, I mentioned before that you said, you know, what happened that made you depressed? And I said, adolescence and all we did as adolescents was we would prank call people. You know, now now people go on Facebook and in front of hundreds, even thousands of people, they bully people, you know, and they're vicious. And, and, and
0: that bullying echoes for weeks, months, years, depending on how long that post is up.
1: Yes, yes. and And I don't want to make the mistake of saying bullying leads to suicide because— Many, many people are bullied and don't die by suicide. But for somebody who's vulnerable and already um, struggling emotionally, to then be bullied online or at school or in whatever context can just be absolutely devastating.
0: I want to say that CU Boulder just announced it was increasing mental health services on campus because of an increase in demand. And I want to note that the number of youth suicide reports to Colorado's Safe to Tell program has increased markedly in just the past few years. I want to go back to something you said before the break, which is there are therapists and I guess people in general who are afraid to bring up, are you feeling suicidal with a client or a, a friend or a family member? It strikes me that that's maybe your nugget of advice. Ask.
1: Yes. Ask the question. Don't be afraid There's no way to talk somebody into suicide. So, you know, if if I ask somebody, are you having suicidal thoughts? I've never had anybody say, oh, my God, I never thought of that. Oh, yeah, that's an option.
0: Yeah, I think relying on that touchstone really does reduce the fear of bringing it up.
1: Yeah. I mean, the thing is, is I'm talking to you right now about suicide. Do you feel suicidal? I don't. There's a case in point.
0: And yet, don't we hear about uh, sort of copycat effect? In other words, if, if young, impressionable young people see a friend do this or someone else in their school, and you, you actually have written about this, uh, I think early on, there was a kind of rash of suicides at a school you attended as a kid. Is there something to be said for for that?
1: That's the paradox. And I think it's hard for a lot of people to reconcile that on the one hand, asking about suicidal thoughts doesn't give somebody the idea. But on the other hand, when a teenager dies by suicide or attempts suicide, it can trigger a contagion effect. And the difference seems to be around context and behavior. You know, if I'm asking somebody, are you having thoughts of suicide? I'm asking with the intention of helping. And I'm not glorifying suicide. I'm not talking about it in a way that could be destructive Hmm. when somebody attempts suicide or dies by suicide people who are vulnerable and there's research on this you know that vulnerable young people they can start thinking people will pay attention to me the way they're paying attention you know especially when if there's a memorial ceremony or a locker memorial or things like that that people can be influenced The other thing I want to say is that for some people, they're vulnerable and maybe they've already been thinking of suicide. And then when there's a suicide in their school, that in a way it can make them feel like, okay, this is something that...
0: Is in the realm of possibility. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. I'd like to wrap up with what you referred to earlier as having blinders on. In other words, folks who get so focused on the darkness, on what's wrong with them, with their lives that they can't see anything else. Someone who is listening to us right now feels that way. What's the first thing they should do?
1: So the way I think about it is it's like somebody being locked in a dark closet in a house that has a lot of light, but the closet is so dark that they don't know there's light out there. And so the first thing then is for us to somehow join the person in the darkness so that we can help them get back into the light. So, I guess that 's my answer to your question is the question isn 't only what that person can do, but what can other people do for somebody that they 're concerned about around them Yes, and I think i 've even heard this recently that a lot of people who are depressed or suicidal feel like the onus is on them to ask for help, and they want people also to reach out to them. So, I would say to somebody who 's in that dark closet right now and is convinced that there 's no light that first of all. Don't believe everything that you, you feel. Don't believe everything that you think. Your mind can lie to you, you know, mm. and especially depression, stress, trauma, all of those can create what mental health professionals call distortions in thought. And so just because you think it doesn't mean it's true.
0: Stacey Friedenthal is a psychotherapist and associate professor at the University of Denver Graduate School of Social Work. She also created the website speakingofsuicide.com. Tonight, longtime Denver developer and preservationist Dana Crawford will receive the Governor's Citizenship Medal for her pioneering work to revitalize historic buildings and urban areas in this state. One of Denver's most charming blocks, Larimer Square, was saved from the wrecking ball more than 50 years ago because of Crawford. She went on to develop other historic properties in the city, including the Oxford Hotel, Union Station, and the Flower Mill Lofts, where she now lives. And it's where we went recently to catch up with Crawford, who at 87 is working on new preservation projects around Colorado. She's also speaking out against a plan to build two new towers on Larimer Square. As we were setting up, Crawford recalled her quest decades ago to preserve the flour mill building.
2: I thought this building was just stunning. And most everybody thought I was insane. And the neighbors all called this a see-through building, and they wanted it torn down.
0: See-through as in it looked bombed out. But Crawford managed to convince city leaders and investors that the building was worth saving and converting into lofts.
2: We were a little bit under construction, but no glass was in the windows. And the trains go by, you know, 25 feet from here. So and the two of my four sons are sitting up here, and the train goes by, and it sounds like an atomic bomb. Because we have double glazing now, and there's a train going by right now, a big coal train, but you can't hear it. <laughs> anyway, so... Peter says to his younger brother, she's really lost at this time.
0: (laughs) Well, sitting at her dining room table, I asked Dana Crawford about the future of Larimer Square just a few blocks away. Jeff Hermanson announced this proposal. He's CEO of Larimer Associates, which owns the block. The idea was to add two new multi-story buildings, one with affordable housing. Uh, But it would mean the partial demolition of several old buildings, What do you believe is wrong with the plan? Well, I have to
2: say that when I first saw it, I was intrigued. However, when I began to study it, and I realized that one of the high-rise buildings was to be 40 stories high, and it would involve being superimposed over one of the most important historic buildings, the Sussex, it would have darkened all of Larimer Square practically. And one of my favorite times of year is when the kids come down in the spring, in the third grade and fourth grade when they study Colorado history, and they can actually see and feel a commercial district from around the turn of the last century. A
0: pretty low-slung one.
2: Yeah, and the world was low-slung then. And so they have an opportunity to really understand and feel what their community came from. So that would be ended. I think that many of the tenants that have been there a long time would not be able to remain. Uh, As you mentioned, the demolition of part of the buildings. So in Larimer Square, present-day defense, what they're trying to do is figure out how to finance the ongoing maintenance of those buildings.
0: And here comes a train, by the way.
2: Yes. Um, So... That was, I think, the thinking behind building these two new buildings and getting income from them to finance the improvements or rehabilitation. From my perspective, and now since I've talked to so many people about it from a lot of perspectives, it not only kills Larimer Square, but it also threatens everything that we've worked on all these years to get the character maintained throughout this city. Uh, Because if they do that to Larimer Square, then it opens up the political gates to change everything.
0: I mean, the plan came under heavy criticism, as I think you're reflecting there, from preservationists, including the National Trust for Historic Preservation, which put Larimer Square on its list of America's 11 most endangered historic places. I'll say the owners have put the plan on hold, but they say Larimer Square's buildings need significant rehabilitation, Is it possible to do that without changing Larimer Square's character?
2: Absolutely, yes. It's been done all over the country. Charleston, South Carolina, Philadelphia, Boston. building's much older than ours. So it can be done.
0: I think there are some who would just be perplexed by the idea that Larimer Square could be fundamentally changed at all if it's on a register. Help me understand that.
2: Well... The kind of tragic thing, in a way, is 50% of the buildings that have been placed on the National Register have been demolished. Uh, there's no protection for them. There is protection usually in local landmarking, and Larimer Square is a local landmark.
0: And I should point out that Denver City Council President Albus Brooks told the Denver Post, tearing down any historic building is dead on arrival. And uh, he added, revitalization and preservation can coexist. That is exactly correct. Dana Crawford, what on earth attracted you to an old mine on an EPA Superfund site?
2: Well, the view of the uh, mill, the big red building that says Argo Mill on the hillside that you drive by, and you just keep wondering, what is that? Hmm. I should go up and look at it uh, because it's the epitome of a landmark. And that it could really make a big difference to, you know, demonstrate the history of Colorado during a very, very dramatic time in our growth. So I went up. I could visualize what could happen. And so I signed on.
0: You could visualize what would happen. What do you envision?
2: Well, I think that we have shared vision with the ownership and and with a lot of the people There are only 1,700 people that live in Idaho Springs. We know that there's a big demand for housing on the Front Range. So down at the east end, we can see kind of an Italian hill town. An Italian
0: hill town, the kind of thing I might see in like under a Tuscan sun. Exactly. Okay. You know what that's about. Uh
2: And then on the west end, we could do some more affordable units that also would be stacked on the hill.
0: Because this is an area that's really desperate for workforce housing, teachers, workforce police housing. officers.
2: Well, and people in the restaurant business and the hotel industry. So then you've got Clear Creek running through, turning the waterway into a landscaped area. And along that site, we'd have a, a base camp sort of with the retail and a restaurant. And then there has been discussion about a hotel in for a long time we talked about how were we going to get up there but now we're talking about a gondola to an area that the city owns 500 acres up there where they have a massive plan for a huge outdoor recreation facility
0: mountain biking, biking
2: hiking hiking all do. of those things and so how far long is this project the gondola could be realized within a year uh, the housing probably could be realized within two or
0: three years. In Pueblo, you're part of a group looking to redevelop a historic power plant. But south of Pueblo in Trinidad, I want to talk about the project you're involved in called La Puerta de Colorado, or the, the Gateway to Colorado. It's obviously not far from the New Mexico line. Talk just a bit about this project. Well, and, um, and I'll say right next to us is this like beautiful old map of Trinidad.
2: Well... It's very unfortunate that so many people who are traveling south to Santa Fe don't have the opportunity to stop long enough to drive around in the streets of Trinidad which are packed with great architecture.
0: Great brick buildings, right?
2: Great brick buildings. There's an historic theater there, which we're in the process of reclaiming. Seats twelve hundred people, has perfect acoustics, was designed by two brothers who went there early on in the last century, the Rapp brothers, who were responsible for 80 buildings.
0: There is such tension in Colorado right now around growth and congestion, and I got here first, and why are all these other people moving here? and I miss the old Denver, and my favorite places are closing, and what happened to this block? I think there's as much of that as there is excitement and hope and energy about all that's new and growing. Will you talk to the people for whom the growth is unsettling and who think, now Dana Crawford's going to bring this to Trinidad. Now she's going to bring it to Idaho Springs. Now she's going to bring it to Pueblo. It's human nature
2: to resist change. Now, some people are very positive thinkers, And some people kind of thrive on complaining. One of the things I like to do in a new community is try to reach a shared vision about the future. And we use the power of 10. 10 of the most important ideas for the long term and 10 of the ideas that can be done in the short term. And it's a very, very important exercise for the naysayers and the cheerful people to go through. And it's going to happen no matter what we have to say about it. And so if we want to maintain our quality of life and leave something important for future
0: generations,
2: we have to get to work.
0: Thanks for having us in your home. Thank you. Denver developer and preservationist Dana Crawford. Tonight she'll receive the Governor's Citizenship Medal. And that's Colorado Matters for today. You can follow us at Colorado Matters on Twitter. We are CPR News on Facebook. This is listener-supported Colorado Public Radio. Thanks for spending time with us.